Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with the editor of Nation Within a Nation, the American South, and the federal government, Glenn Feldman. Glenn, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Heath. Good to, good to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back to talk about this edited volume. Before we get to it, um, maybe you can refresh everyone's uh, uh, memory on, uh, on your background, where you are, and um, share a little bit about yourself. Right. I am uh, currently professor of uh, history at the uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, I have just completed my 18th year here, Um, served as professor of economics and uh, director of the uh, Center for Labor Education and Research uh, during the way. Uh, I'm a native of actually of Birmingham, Alabama. and uh, have kind of a varied background in political science, economics, and, of course, history. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, a pleasure to have you back. And, you know, as I explained before we got started recording, I have a little extra background noise. So uh, we're going to hope that that doesn't get, get too bad. I'll try to minimize that wherever we can. So about a year ago, uh, we had you on the podcast to talk about uh, your book, um, and you're on now to talk about this edited volume. So how did you come to write this this edited book? Um, what was the original germ of the idea for the book? Uh, did you go to the publisher with it? Or did they come to you to tell us a little bit about its history? Well, uh, it, it, throughout the other uh, research and, and books that I've worked on and articles, uh, the, the theme or the idea of how does the American South relate to the federal government had always been there and had always been in the background or even in the, in the, in the foreground of a lot of what I'd done. Um, so I wanted to explore closely that relationship because I find it to be an intriguing relationship. It also relates to the uh, kind of current questioning of the South as a distinctive region that's so prevalent, uh, at least in history and, and in political science as well, among um, some younger historians uh, and scholars particularly. Uh, so I wanted to look at that question. I didn't have the, uh, the freedom really to engage in a full-fledged book at the time myself due to other commitments, but uh, I thought it would be useful to recruit uh, very talented scholars from history, political science, and in human geography to explore the question, uh, how does the South relate to the federal government? How has it related to the federal government? And, and, and over time, does that mean the South is a distinctive or has been a distinctive or exceptional region within the country? So that's basically the background of how this thing got started. 
Yeah, and you know, with edited volume, edited volumes, I'm always interested to know how the the actual collection is is put together. Uh, so tell us about how you uh, pulled these chapters together. Um, are these colleagues you've worked with before? Um, are there any interesting stories about uh, which chapter was added last or was the hardest to fit in? Tell us a little bit about the the background of of some of the people that you worked with on this. It's a hodgepodge. Um, editing a book, a lot of people don't like to edit books because they, they believe that it's more difficult than actually writing it themselves. And to be honest, at certain points during the journey, uh, you, you feel that way. Um, some of these scholars are friends. Some are uh, people that I've worked with before. But for the most part, um, they are new to me, uh, that, uh, people that I've gotten to know through their work. Uh, Fred Bailey, for instance, I've worked with before on a number of things. Uh, Marty Olive, I was actually in graduate school with. Uh, but for the most part, and, and Natalie Davis was a, a political science mentor to me a uh, long time ago. But for the most part, the uh, contributors are people that I have not worked with before uh, that just had a real interest in the topic and had something to offer that I thought was was very uh, worthwhile. Yeah, so, uh, I haven't edited a volume myself, but I can imagine that's a really nice part of uh, the process is, is both uh, engaging with people you've, you've had longstanding relationships with, but also taking the chance to expand your network a little bit. So let's talk about, you know, the, the thrust of the book. Um, you write that the um, the South has a tortured relationship with the federal government. Um, I was wondering in this, um, who's the torturer and, and who is the tortured in, in your metaphor? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. To be frank, I, I believe that, you know, um, that's a difficult question to answer in black and white terms. But I think overall, if we look at the relationship overall, I believe that the South, if we can call, you know, if we can talk about such a thing as the South, the mind of the South, the soul of the South, the South as a homogenous being or entity, believes itself to be the tortured victim of the federal government. When in reality, and this is the irony of it in the paradox, in reality, the South has been, for the most part, the beneficiary of its relationship with the federal government. And so, yes, at, at times I, I talk about the relationship being tortured. At times I talk about the relationship being, frankly, rather um, self-serving and uh, even hypocritical and at times even perverse. Uh, I think that the South has benefited and continues to benefit disproportionately from its relationship with the federal government. On the other hand, the, uh, the um, predominant perception among especially white Southerners is that the federal government is out to get them. And is, is, you know, is, is something to be feared, is something to be loathed, is something to be resisted, and is something that is alien, completely alien. Glenn, where do you draw the boundaries in the South? I think of the South as, uh, you know, as a given, you have the 11 former Confederate states. Uh, you have to add to that, I think, Kentucky. Um, and then there are other parts of different states that clearly fit in. Uh, for instance, uh, the southern part of Missouri, parts of Oklahoma, parts of West Virginia, 
And then you can question whether all of Florida is, is southern anymore. I think once you cross that I-4 corridor and you've, you, you're south of Orlando, Tampa, you're not really talking about the south anymore like you used to in Florida. So um, yeah, that's what I basically consider the south. And this, you know, I, I've spent some time in the south. And, and one of the things I want to come back to uh, towards the end of our conversation is, is the so the old south and, and the new south. And you live in, in the south now and talk a little bit about that. Um, but I want to talk about some of the some of the chapters, particularly the, the chapters that stick out to you. What did you learn from one of these chapters that you didn't know or, or didn't fully appreciate prior to um, either reading it or editing it? What's what's new to you as someone who spent a lot of his career, a lot of his time thinking deeply about these issues? What was new to you? I think the the chapter that clearly stands out as something new to me is the Thomas Schaller chapter. And Tom Schaller is a, a well-known political scientist who I guess is uh, best known for the book Whistling Past Dixie, which was uh, received a lot of attention a few election cycles ago. But uh, Tom wrote on South Carolina and that was an eye opener for me. I uh, I had always leaned toward the uh, assumption through my own research and so forth that Alabama, Mississippi, um, perhaps Georgia were the most recalcitrant kind of intractable southern states. And and I have to rethink that after reading about South Carolina. It's just amazing. Um, how just how intractable and how hostile uh, to all things federal South Carolina has managed to be for so long. And what I refer to is, um, <clears throat> you know, South Carolina, as the chapter explains, was was an outlier to the to the federal republic from the word go that, that Thomas Jefferson removed language in the Declaration of Independence about uh, slavery because South Carolina objected that South Carolina Tories in 1780 uh, helped the British crown take take back the state from the revolutionaries or the patriots that, you know, South Carolina, of course, we know is the center of nullification, the nullification crisis, John C. Calhoun and the doctrine of interposition in the 19th century. But this 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 continues. Um, and it was actually a South Carolina case that formed the basis of the Brown v. Board of Education, which Kansas gets the you know, gets the leading uh, Topeka, Kansas gets the leading uh, uh, mention there, but actually it originated with a with a South Carolina case, and so that, along with the kind of uh, ritual of Republican presidential candidates visiting South Carolina, the South Carolina primary, the importance of the ritualistic visit to Bob Jones University by Republicans, and also. Uh, what happened there in the year 2000 between John McCain and George W. Bush all of adds up to really an eye opener about just how deep the hatred and um, and resistance and actually fear is in South Carolina towards the federal government. Now, on the subject of nullification, this is this is still with us uh, that parts of the Tea Party evoke nullification in uh, as as a way in which they can meet some of their strategies. You have a chapter on the um, written about the Tea Party. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it and and how this this uh, sort of the the new politics of certain parts of the South uh, change or, or or broaden out the story that you tell. 
Well, I think that, that one of the most important is more of an underlying theme in the book is that Southern ways have, have increasingly become national ways. And, and we look at the Tea Party and uh, people are, are quick to point out that this is something that, that is, has national appeal. And the, the chapter by Alan McBride, who's a political scientist, um, points us out that there is national appeal uh, for the Tea Party, that race is not the only issue for the Tea Party and so forth. I think that it's important, though, to remember that so much of this originated in the South. Uh, there was a Southern template. There was a Southern model or prototype and archetype for these types of politics that have resonated now uh, nationally. And uh, you see it. Uh, the Tea Party is one of the most dramatic examples, I think, of what really is uh, – a Southern type of politics that has been incorporated into the national bloodstream, uh, whether it's, I guess, the, one of the most dramatic examples lately has been Clive and Bundy in, in uh, Nevada and the, uh, the absolute defiance of the federal government to the point of, you know, people's Tea Party types uh, taking up arms against uh, federal agents over a land dispute. And so... Um, I think that uh, it, it's easy to 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 miss the southern origins of what what passes now or what's uh, what's called the Tea Party nationally. And that's not to say that there aren't people all over the country who are Tea Party advocates. But change it all. You you chose one of the one of the chapters to be written by a human uh, demographer, I believe is was was the title. Geographer, yes. Sorry, human geographer. Um, how does how does this change our understanding of the South and Southern politics? Um, uh, major major cities, including the city that you live in, um, which which has been greatly changed by uh, the movement of people people coming in from the North and and also from uh, other uh, countries, immigration. How is this changing the the Southern uh, mindset on politics? Well, I think in a number of ways. Uh, while the you know of course while America is being southernized, the South is being Americanized, and that's not something new. Uh, Douglas uh, Egerton talked about that a long time ago. Um, A number of other people have talked about that. Uh, Peter Applebaum. Um, And it's it's true. This this process occurs at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not like the America is being southernized and that's it. Uh, The South is being Americanized as well. I do think the influx of immigrants from other countries, and I do think the the influx of non-southerners into the South has tended to make the South more cosmopolitan in certain areas, especially in its urban areas. There's There's a distinct still urban rural split it's not only manifest in the south it's 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 clear i think across the country but it's it's very pronounced in the south still i also think that southern migration to other places you know people talk about california uh and orange county conservatism you know and so forth as the as the as the the uh one of the the nerve centers or the places where conservatism or American conservatism took off. And it's true. I mean, you have Ronald Reagan and so forth. But people forget that, you know, during the Depression, it was Okies and Arkies and Texans who moved out to California and took with them their cultural 
worldviews, took with them their prejudices and biases and, 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 and emphasis on religion and their politics and everything else, along with their music and their taste for food and whatever. And this movement, not only to California, but this movement to places like Detroit by hundreds of thousands of Southerners has, has uh, helped along with very purposeful, very purposeful campaigns to infuse the, the, the nation's artery with Southern views. It, it's had a tremendous effect and I think a, a hidden effect. I could probably... I was going to ask you about your, your next project. Um, you allude to the subject matter. Uh, where are you in the process? When, uh, when might we expect to uh, do something? You know, uh, this is going to be a kind of a, this is going to take a while. Um, because I'm I'm really trying to to go back and to do a lot of reading among a, a lot of conservative thinkers, uh, Russell Kirk, uh, George Nash, um, Buckley himself, and and to see exactly where re- conservatism left uh, what I would consider a kind of a rational, reasonable discourse and has has become you know more attracted to to irrational uh and and rather explosive and extreme manifestations whether you're talking about tea party or clive and bundy or you're talking about ann Coulter, or you're talking about fox news or you're talking about uh, you know rick santorum or or sarah palin i mean this is a different animal than conservatism was prior to, to, to Barry Goldwater and so forth. And, and just to mention Goldwater, for instance, Goldwater and, and Reagan, who are tremendously influential, are really sons of the South. I mean, you know, one's from Arizona, one's from California, but they were lionized in the South and glorified in the South and, and really used the South as a, a base for their national uh, ascendance. And so the region has just been tremendously influential for a long time. Yeah, well, I can't wait. Uh, I enjoyed your your uh, previous book. Uh, I don't think it was your first book, but your previous book. Really enjoyed this, and and can't wait for the next one. Uh, until we get it, uh, uh, Glenn's book, which was published by University Press of Florida this year, it's called Nation with a Nation: uh, The American South and the Federal Government. Glenn, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It's always a pleasure talking to you. 